0: So this guy that I that I worked with at my first agency job said he had a professor at Ball State who said, if you can't make it good, make it big. If you can't make it big, make it red. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Steven Tyler, and this is No Indie.
1: Each week on the show, I share a conversation with one of the good people doing their best right here in Indianapolis. This is episode 11, and today's guest is marketing extraordinaire, Josh Miles. This conversation with Josh was recorded earlier in the year, shortly after he made the announcement that he was walking away from the ad agency he started over 15 years ago. I have a fascination with people making big changes, so I was really excited for the opportunity to sit down with Josh and ask him about his decision. Since recording this podcast, Josh has taken the role as chief marketing officer at the Society for Marketing Professional Services. Josh also hosts the Obsessed with Design podcast and is involved in more side projects than I have time to list. As usual, this interview is split into two episodes. This is part one and the conclusion to this conversation, episode 12, will be in your feed next Thursday morning. Thank you for listening. Here is part one of my conversation with... Josh Miles. Uh, I want to start with something that I understand you have some expertise with. I was with a mutual friend and he said, I really want a steak. I'm going to go to the butcher. I'm going to buy a steak and I'm going to take it to Josh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do you make a great steak? Oh man, I love making steak. So one of my, my current obsessions is, uh, is my diet, which we can talk about that later too, if you want, but but I eat a lot of high fat and decent protein kind of stuff. And so meat in particular is exciting. And, uh, because I'm a bit, um, of a perfectionist Mm -hmm. and I love a good steak. I love the idea that I can make a great steak in my house. That's maybe better than what I would have in a restaurant. So my approach is I use cast iron. Okay. So I will throw the cast iron skillet into the oven at about 425 degrees okay, until the oven has preheated. And then I let it sit just a little bit longer. And then I pop that puppy out and throw it up on top of the stove and cook it on a gas stove and throw some ghee or butter in there. And then I've got the steaks, um, ideally filet or maybe a ribeye. Mm-hmm. And I pat them dry. How thick? Know.
1: How thick should my steak be?
0: Yeah, usually about inch and a half or two inches. Oh, man. So I'll I'll rinse them off and pat them dry and then cover them in salt and garlic and throw them in that butter for about two minutes a side. Then I'll pop that in the oven to finish it at 425. And I have a little thermometer in my oven so I can stick the, it, it almost looks like a stereo cable. So you pop the thermometer side into the middle of the thickest steak. And then there's like a, a quarter inch jack. Inside the oven Hmm. and you set the temperature, I think I usually go to, to 130 or 135, depending on who's eating with me. Okay. (laughs) I tend to err on the more rare side if it's just my wife and I, and, uh, and it'll tell me when it, when it hits that temperature. So I pull it out and then sit them on a plate, let them rest. Maybe throw a little more butter on top of them as they are, uh, resting. And after 10 minutes, it's perfect, perfect medium to medium rare. That
1: sounds amazing. Um, Any tips on a cast iron
0: skillet? Oh yeah. Keep away from the soap when you are washing the cast iron. So, um, I will, after I pull the steaks out, I make a little sauce, typically like a, a red wine reduction. Mm -hmm. So you can do just a little bit of red wine in the skillet and just keep stirring it until it starts to thicken up. And then you pour that out and use that as a sauce you can put straight on the steak after you've made the reduction, Mm -hmm. then take it straight to the sink and rinse out the pan with water and then dry it out with paper towel. And that's it. Okay. No more soap. If you use the soap, you're kind of killing the the cast iron finish. What's special about the cast iron? It's like years and years and years of, of oil and fat that just kind of makes this perfect barrier. Huh. So cast iron, if, if it gets too clean or too dry, it'll, or too clean and wet at the same time, it'll rust. So you want it to kind of keep that, oily residue, which sounds either awesome or disgusting depending on where you sit, but, but it's perfect. All right. That's good to know. Uh,
1: you're the third designer that I know personally who has an affection for cooking. (laughs) Um, one loved the creativity. Another loves a procedural escape from his creative activities. He does all day. What about
0: it appeals to you? I think, I think both of those things are true. So I love, As you probably heard in the description of the steak, like I have this very regimented process that I Mm -hmm. follow. Um, Sometimes I will set a timer for those two minutes aside and sometimes I just count it in my head. So as I'm doing other things, which kind of makes it more of a challenge, like, Mm -hmm. ooh, it's almost like doing the trick without the net below. Okay. But I love um, with other things like decide to make a chicken curry and just kind of pull things at random, like, oh, I'll try this spice today or a little bit more of that sauce or something. And mm-hmm. so I think the, the creativity piece is definitely part of it too. Do you have, do you have the need to
1: escape a, like a creative process in your mind? So I know some people, their mind runs nonstop and they're looking for something to make that quit so they can get some quiet. Is that something you have to deal
0: with? So I'm not sure that that actually counts as quiet for me. So uh-huh. it, it's really just, being able to apply the same kind of thinking and the same approach in a different venue. Mm-hmm. Um, if nothing else, I think it adds to to the variety of how you use the creativity as opposed to just being in front of a computer monitor all day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What fuels your creativity? That's a great question. I, I feel like it's, um, there's just this innate need that, um, even over the last few months where I haven't, you know, had a necessarily a full-time job, I've found myself just as busy Mm. digging and trying to learn things and trying to make new things and, and master new skills. And it's just, so even when nobody's watching and I, I'm not really required to be doing anything, I'm still, I'm still doing stuff kind of nonstop. When was the last time you weren't creating something? A few weeks ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to go to Napa oh. for the first time. Yeah, um, we both enjoy red wine in particular and had neither been to Napa before. So what was so amazing um, about Napa in February is that they grow mustard in the fields in the same fields that the the vineyards are in. So I guess it's a vineyard, not a field. <laughs> this huh. is how, what a noob I am to the world of Napa. <laughs> so they they grow mustard along the vineyards. And for many of the vineyards, this started as having an alternate crop that they can grow in off season. So before the the vines start to grow, they can grow this mustard and it sprouts earlier and they harvest it, sell it. Hmm. Well, on the organic farms, they grow it as fertilizer. So they grow this mustard In the vineyards and then they plow it down and plow it into the field and it creates just this powerhouse of nutrients into the field of the mustard seed kind of spreads into the dirt and creates all this great organic matter. So outside of that fun fact, it is gorgeous to look at. It is just, you know, you think of mustard yellow. It is almost like hurts your eyes bright to drive through these vineyards and see just yellow everywhere. Yeah. Huh. So that was a week that we didn't do a whole lot. That was a hang out, just enjoy the beauty and, you know, sample a few wines here and there. Was it restful for you? Like Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think it was um, part of the reason that I can turn off in that instance is I had something else to focus on. So I'm not a very good, you know, spend a week on the beach and just sit there. Mm -hmm. Even... In a Florida or tropical kind of vacation, I have to have something to do. Mm -hmm. I have to read, or you know, or or plan out where we're going for dinner. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Those those are always good good fallbacks
1: too. Uh, One phrase you've associated with yourself is obsessed with design. Mm -hmm. I guess the name of your podcast, but or you you say you're design obsessed. Do you see creativity and good design ever like conflicting with each other?
0: No, that's a good question. I don't know if they conflict. There there are times where I think um, good design and good sales practices are maybe the best marketing approach. And when I say best, I mean most effective. Mm-hmm. So You can get the most eyeballs, get the most conversions, may not be from the most elegant, most beautiful design. Yeah. Case in point, the ever popular bomb burst, which is the kind of jagged in and out thing that you'd see on a newspaper or a billboard ad of like sale or 50% off. Like there's nothing that designers hate more, besides maybe like papyrus font and comic sans (laughs) than like a bomb burst Mm -hmm. or some ridiculous horsey kind of thing. And now bomb bursts maybe are cool because it looks retro or has this um, ironically kitschy kind of thing going on. But those are the types of things. And, and it doesn't have to be a bomb burst. You know, sometimes a button that is big and red and underlined and bold and italic all at the same time is just screaming at you. It's mm-hmm. like everything about this button is important. So you just want to click it. But as a designer, you would never, never do that on purpose. I had past experience with that. Make it bigger and redder, please. <laughs> that was always what the request was. So this guy that I, that I worked with at my first agency job Said he had a professor at Ball State who said, if you can't make it good, make it big. If you can't make it big, make it red. <laughs> <laughs> so there's just this awesome. Like if it's big and red, it's probably not good. That's that's so true though. That's absolutely right. I think that works well as like as a Purdue grad, I think that works really good as a as an IU joke too. <laughs> you know, big red. Couldn't make it good. So they made a big red. Boiler up. Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> uh, what was your degree in? I was a double major in visual communications, which is university speak for graphic design. Okay. And advertising, which was in the communication school, which is now called the Brian Liam School of Communication. Okay. Um, on the topic of big and red,
1: I think that brings us to the idea of constraints mm. and creativity. Yeah. And in my experience, if you give someone an assignment with no limits, it is much, much harder to be successful than a project with constraints. So how do you, how do you think about the alchemy between constraints and creativity?
0: Yeah, fully agreed. And I think as a, as either a a young designer or, you know, fresh professional in that field, um, or as a client, somebody who's potentially hiring a designer, the idea that Oh man, just do whatever you want. Just make it cool. Just Mm -hmm. do something exciting uh, is actually a pretty crippling brief. (laughs) Yeah. So it's like the idea of not setting any expectations for what success looks like Mm -hmm. is what you're saying when you say, just make it, make it great, make it amazing, make it cool. Um, And at some point, constraints can be frustrating when you feel like they are restricting the types of solutions that you as a creative might offer. Uh, But for the most part, I think constraints just set up where success is going to lie. So it helps you identify, you can do the most amazing thing possible within these four walls. And then you know exactly what it needs to look like and how it needs to work. And I mean, not literally what it needs to look like, but you start to, to start to get that planned out in your head.
1: Okay. On the topic of young designers, what advice would you have on how to receive criticism?
0: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I'm not sure if you know this, but for a little while I taught um, adjunct um, for a couple of different design programs. So I had a chance to teach at IUPUI and at Heron um, and at Art Institute. And far and away, my my favorite experiences were at Heron. And I think it was just part of the the mindset there was that. You know, when you're dealing with sophomores, they're sort of past the fear of the critique. Mm. And I think being able to take and receive criticism, constructive criticism on your creative output um, is, is a huge part of actually getting to doing great, great design work. Mm. So when, when you look at it through your own lens or through your own timeline or just through your own head, it's easy to get stuck on the first idea Mm -hmm. and maybe not the first idea, but the one that you feel like is really working. Mm -hmm. And then as you start to kind of pull things together and other people look at it and they say, I don't see it that way. Or have you thought about lining this up over here? Or did you think about a different photo or what if, what if this, what if that? Mm -hmm. And I think those kinds of feedback are crucial to especially early in your career, learning how to flex those design muscles and learn how to use design principles and to understand which ones you can break.
1: Mm-hmm. On the other side of that question, what advice would you have to someone giving advice to, or giving criticism to a designer? I've been in meetings before where the answer could be, make it bigger, make it redder. <laughs> um, or it can be, oh, I like this from A, this from B, and this from option C. Can you put them all together into one and you can watch the designer just like sink in the chair? Like, no, that's not what I can do. Um, so what? how do you give meaningful, uh, actionable and substantive feedback to a designer.
0: It's interesting that just this morning, um, Seth Godin had a blog post about this mm. very topic. And so I, um, am not just going to rip off Seth, but I'm also going to agree with what he had to say. Um, his approach was, um, when giving advice or feedback to a creative Make sure that you're not telling them what to do, but what you see and Mm. the opportunities that you kind of perceive for making changes Mm. as opposed to saying, okay, make it bigger, make it red, change the font, change the photo instead. Um, And so the way that I would put that is identify what you see as the problems or the challenges, not what the solution should be. So you're hiring this designer, presumably whether they are in-house with you, So they're an employee or they're, um, an outside contractor, but you're hiring them for their expertise. So bring to them the problem and let them help you find the solution. That makes sense.
1: So your creativity and passion for design kind of became fully realized in Miles design and eventually Miles Herndon. Am I saying Herndon, right? Yeah.
0: Miles Herndon. Um, how old were you when you started Miles design? I was two and a half. (laughs) I was just talking to somebody about this, um, last week and I said, you know, the last time I decided what I wanted to do when I grew up, I was, I think I was like three. Really? So now I'm 41. Yeah. So it's been a while since I've had to figure this out. But, um, part of my story was I kind of declared on the last day of high school that what I was going to do in 10 years was own and operate my own graphic design business. Hmm. And so I'm really the weird case of as a very young kid, I knew I wanted to use art, whatever that meant when I grew up. And I kind of focused on that throughout high school and I studied it in college and I took a job in advertising straight out of school Hmm. and I started my own thing um, like four and a half years out of school. So it was,
1: 2002,
0: Mm. um, was when I started miles design, uh, on paper with the state. I'd I'd been doing freelance work kind of all since graduation before that. But, um, so started it full time in 2003. So we're pushing 16 years of existence there kind of through the entity. Yeah. What
1: was life like for you when you made that change? Did you have kids? Were you married? All that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, we were, we were married, but we didn't have any kids yet. And, um, so April had a a great corporate job and I was working at the finish line, which was, um, my only in-house corporate experience Mm -hmm. and which was pretty cool. Um, I think part of my issue with finish line was that I had to wear khakis with my Nikes and, and (laughs) that just, that just didn't fit me (laughs) very well. But in reality, it was just the timing was right. You know, finish line was a cool place and there was a lot of A lot of cool opportunities, but, um, it just felt like, Hey, we don't have kids. We've got kind of a small house. Like there's, there's not a lot to risk. So Mm -hmm. I had saved up like two months of pay and I decided I'm going to pay myself out of my savings, not out of the business. And after two months, the business needs to be able to pay me Mm -hmm. and then we'll just go from there. And if the business can't pay me, I need to go find a job. So the experiment lasted for me about sixteen years. Wow, <laughs> and uh, I just ended that experiment back in January. Wow. Um,
1: who's the first big client you landed that changed everything?
0: So I had a combination of about three clients that really um, helped establish um, doing this full time. So one of them was the the local firefighters union, who I got introduced to through a through a print broker and they weren't even printing their stuff, but they were like, man, these guys need design help. Hmm. And they did a monthly newsletter that was tabloid style newsprint that they mailed out to all the firefighters in Indianapolis. Hmm. And so I laid out and designed every issue of that for like five or six years. So it was not a big contract, but it was a stable one. The second was a printing company who got acquired by another printer in town. Okay. And I'm still friends with Steve Anzalone, who was the the owner of that company. And uh, the third was the creative director that I worked with at my first agency job also left shortly after I did. And because he was more of a copywriter mm. and I was more on the design side, we collaborated on a lot of projects and were able to hire one another kind of back and forth on a lot of things. So so those were kind of the three core projects that got me started. Hmm.
1: When you started, did you imagine it would did you have vision for it to grow to be what it became?
0: I think somewhere in my head, I knew what the ten year vision was to have an agency. It was the the in-between steps mm-hmm. <laughs> that were really complicated. Like when can you really commit to hiring somebody else? Yeah, and in my case, it was I was getting good enough at selling more work and bringing on the next project. but As I was focused on the customer service and the relationship building aspects, I wasn't getting the design work done. So Mm -hmm. I knew I needed to bring on design help. So the thing that's really interesting looking back is I wasn't strategically considering, do I want to be more of a designer and creative role or do I want to be more of the sales and business guy? Mm -hmm. I just naturally went the second direction Hmm. and naturally my next three or four hires were all designers. So I was slowly but swiftly putting myself out of a design job. Yeah. Um, By about five to 10 years in, design was a very, very small part of what I did. Did you like that or did you miss it? Yeah, there were were things that I liked about it. Um, I felt like being able to present concepts that our team was delivering and to sell those through to the end client That was just as rewarding if, as if I had done it myself Mm. and I felt like, frankly, that was a better use of my time than for me to be, you know, nose into the pixels and Mm. trying to get perfection out of the visuals. It was, it was more profitable for the agency if I made sure the clients were happy and if I made sure they were um, buying into the concepts that we were delivering. Mm. Did it ever become not fun? Yeah. I mean, 2008 was a really rough year for most agencies. Mm. Um, and we had a large contract with, with the city that lasted through 2009. So it was Mm. not until the end of 2009 that really the dip in the economy hit us directly, but 2010 was a pretty rough year and we didn't have to let anybody go, but we definitely amassed some debt and it took us a while to get out of that. And, uh, you know, it's less fun when you're worried about stuff other than just doing the work and doing cool things. Yeah. So, so there are times in which, um, you know, it was more fun than others, but, um, but for the most part, it was, it was pretty wild that it was, you know, my childhood dream job. And I was doing that all day, every day. It was kind of crazy.
1: Um, why did you choose not
0: to let anybody go during that time? I think part of it was just pride. Like I would, rather um, continue to support the team. It was kind of like the the line from, from Hoosiers, like my team's on the floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that was my team. I wasn't about to switch them up just to make it easier for myself and um, being sort of an optimist to a fault. I just felt like we would be out of that problem just around the corner at yeah. any moment. And, you know, those moments took a little longer than I had hoped um, but we got through it and it was, it was great to be able to, um, to not have to put somebody out of work just because we weren't selling things as quickly as we wanted to. Yeah. Are you able to compartmentalize work
1: life and home life or did that time come home with you every
0: night? I think especially early in the business, um, work life was almost synonymous with life. Yeah. It was, it was everything to focus on, on the work and on delivering the work and, you know, the stress of the work or the fun of the work, like all of that was so part of who I was and what I did. So in May of 2017, I had the realization that my design, my business was the most important thing in my life. Mm. And that was not the seat that I wanted it to have. Mm. Like, yes, I'm obsessed with design to the moment. And yes, everything I look at, watching a movie, reading a book, looking at something on television, like I see design in that. And I, it's sort of like the, the matrix effect of, I took that one pill and so now my eyes have been forever open. So I I see those things first and foremost, that's not going to go away. But the reality was, um, my family's the most important thing to me. But how that played out day to day, it didn't look that way. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't, there wasn't any evidence that that was the most important thing. And a really rational person might say, okay, I'm just going to rearrange things mm-hmm. <laughs> and do this a little bit differently. But after almost 16 years of um, the business being the first thing, I was ready to just just switch it up. And there's part of, um, in the branding business in particular, kind of being a change junkie and I hadn't really been able to change up myself in a long time. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is a good opportunity to try something fresh. So I, I think it, it satisfied a lot of itches, um, where I just felt like there were other things I wanted to explore. I I kept telling people For years, you know, if I get hit with a truck full of money, maybe I'll just go teach or I'll just go speak or, um, you know what, why not go figure that out right now? Mm -hmm. Why, why wait until you're retired or why wait another 10 or 20 years to try something new?
1: This is, so you were on my list of people to invite onto the show. And then I heard your podcast or you read your medium post about leaving. And I was like, now's the time I want to talk to him. I I made a similar change a year and a half ago where mm-hmm. I left a, what would I call it? I guess a corporate career went completely in direction to be a handyman. And after considering it and thinking of why did I do this? I realized I really value my time and the family was the thing for me. And I hated every day getting up and going to a job that I enjoyed, but regretting what it owned of me, that it kind of mm-hmm. owned my life. Um, So I'm, whenever I hear someone else taking the plunge and not just living in that thing they've done, I get really excited for people. So that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And I I think there's probably some, some universal truth to that. So you were having those feelings as an employee. I was having those same feelings as the boss, as, as the (laughs) co-owner, I was, you know, feeling the same way. So it was, and it had nothing to do with our, our team. It had nothing to do with our clients. It was just where my head was and where my priorities were and i was ready to switch it up and do some things differently so one thing i'm really
1: constantly asking people about is this decision points mm-hmm. this brewed in you for a long time what pressed you to a decision point where you actually moved and like did the thing
0: i don't know if this is true for everybody but in my head once i had that realization. I think I even said out loud, I'll, I'll leave the agency. I'll sell it. I'll, I'll do something different. Hmm. And so that was in May and it wasn't until August that, um, I was able to sit down with my business partner and, and talk about it. And you know what? He knew something was going on. He could see it in me. And I think my team could see it in me too. They could tell that was just, there was something, something different. And, uh, so I, I sat with it for a few months and I thought about it and I kind of thought through what that might look like. And, uh, that, so that conversation didn't happen for a few months and it wasn't until December that he finally said, you know what, I think maybe I should just buy you out. Like maybe we should, let's, let's try this. And, you know, I was, I was really open to that idea. I was really open to other ideas too. Like what, what could this look like? Mm -hmm. So I tried not to be especially rash about jumping in or out but um but but once I had heard myself say those words like it was it was in my heart that I was I was gonna be doing something else I just didn't know what the timing was how did it feel the first morning you woke up when you weren't Josh Miles principal and co-owner of Miles Herndon you know I think um that was part of that moment in May was realizing that my identity was wrapped up in being Josh Miles at Miles Herndon. Yeah. And there was a lot of pride in that, but there's also um, a lot of freedom and feeling like I can step away from that and have, have my identity be something that's deeper than just my, my role and my job. Mm. So I think it was that realization that just kind of came full circle in January when January 2nd, I let the team know what I was up to. Um, That was the first point where a lot of the team found out. Um, Some people may have been really surprised and some people may have not been surprised at all. Yeah. Um, And then January 3rd, I was at home. And that was just kind of like the bringing to completion that feeling of, of my identity could be in something, something deeper. That's awesome. But scary. Terrifying. I mean, I don't, I really don't sit back and question the choice, but there are some days, especially now we're almost three months into this decision and I'm still kind of a free agent doing, doing a few things here and there and I'm having fun. I'm having fun, but there are moments where I'm like, what am I doing? What am I going to do with myself? Yeah. <laughs> so the, the good news is there, there seems to be more potential opportunities than I have time. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. But then also there's a little bit of this pressure of, do I choose something to go all in with or do I, do I dabble? Do I do a little bit of different things? And, and if I want to dabble, is that forever or is that a short term experiment also? And the good news is, I don't necessarily have to figure it out right away, but yeah. it's been fun thinking about it. Very
1: good. Yeah, it's, it just relates so much to like, you're speaking to my heart, my own personal experience and the the free agent part of it where you wake up every day and you realize, and you've, as a business owner for yourself, for years, you've kind of had this idea, but you wake up every day and you realize like you control your own destiny. Mm-hmm. You can choose to do something or not choose to do something and
0: no one's going to care except for you. I had this realization, um, a few years back, one of my favorite people in Indianapolis who, if he's not already on your radar, Mm. you should consider chatting with CJ McClanahan. Um, CJ is a, is a coach and a speaker and, um, has been in and out of the radio and podcast world as well. But, um, Mm. he was my business coach, um, for something like, I don't know, five or six years. And CJ, you can yell at me later for not knowing how long we worked together. (laughs) Um, but we met together like every two weeks for, for years. And I remember one of the last times that I met with CJ, we were in his office and he had like a jar of M&Ms and he just leaned back in his chair and he propped his feet up on the table. And he's like, what's up J man. And he pops a few M&Ms in his mouth and he was just so carefree and so laid back. And I was like, he can just do whatever he wants. And then I had this realization of like, well, so can you. <laughs> so like the freedom that I was um, envying in this other business owner was freedom that I had in my hands. And I just wasn't, wasn't really realizing it. Like his, his attitude and his carefreeness in his office was something that, that I wanted to emulate and something that I was like, man, I just, I just want to kind of walk in that freedom instead of being Stuck in whatever it was I was stuck in at the moment, but but that day I felt like, man, that's that's something I want.
1: What would you say to someone who is where you were, I would say maybe two years ago even, like they realize they're not happy with the situation they're in, but are having trouble to bring themselves to make the change.
0: Yeah, I, and I think part of my problem was a failure to even realize that maybe it was me um, mm. two years ago if you had asked me and people did like, Hey, you've got this little side project over here and this side project over there. And then there's, there's miles herndon. And, um, do you think you'd ever sell or do something else? And my response was always the same. Like, Hey, if somebody came with the right timing and the right price on one of these side projects, I would definitely talk to them, but you're going to have to pry miles herndon or miles design out of my cold dead hands. Hmm. Like I will, I will die here. And I had this vision that, You know, maybe my kids would want to work there or maybe it would stay a family business or I don't know. But I, and I definitely, um, you know, wanted to bring in partners and wanted to have people whose names were not miles (laughs) in the business because I wanted to have some more depth to it and some different points of view. But um, I was just not in the position two years ago that I thought there was anything wrong. Like it was, and and I don't know there was anything wrong. Wrong is probably the wrong The wrong phrase, but, but I think to really take some time to be introspective and think about where you are and is that, is that really where you want to be? Is that really what you want to do? Um, and how might things look differently and to not, to not see business ownership as, and this is maybe dramatic, but not to see it as a life sentence. Like you don't, you know, you're not stuck with it. Mm -hmm. Decide tomorrow if you want to do something different and figure out what it takes to get there.
1: We are going to pause right here. The conclusion to my interview with Josh will show up in your feed next Thursday morning. Find me on the socials at No Indie Show and learn more at NoIndie.com. Thank you for listening.